Hi, this is Daniel Levine. Before we begin this week's episode of the Bio Report, I wanted to share some exciting news with you. Starting in January, I'll be hosting Rarecast, a new podcast with Global Genes and their publication Rare Daily, where we'll explore the intersection of business, policy, and science around rare disease. Stay tuned for more details in the next few weeks and keep an eye out for us on raredaily.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The cost of drug development, a metric that underlies discussions ranging from investment in startups to drug pricing, is a matter of great interest and controversy within the pharmaceutical industry. The Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development recently completed a new estimate of the cost of developing a new prescription drug and raised it to $2.6 billion, up from $802 million in 2003. We spoke to Joe DeMassi. Director of Economic Analysis at the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development and Principal Investigator for the study about the findings, why there's been dramatic growth in cost despite efforts to reinvent drug development, and whether there's reason to think the trend will reverse itself anytime soon. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be here. You are the keeper, the calculator, the developer of what is probably one of the most oft-quoted numbers in the pharmaceutical industry. You've just updated your numbers, and, and we're going to talk today about what they are and how you arrived at them, but perhaps more importantly, what they mean. Let's begin with the numbers themselves. How much do you calculate it costs to develop a drug today, and, and how has that number changed over time? Well, the top-line number is um, approximately $2.6 billion per approved compound. Now, that number includes um, uh, the actual cash outlays uh, expended on drug development from discovery to to approval, and that amount is approximately $1.4 billion. Uh, the difference, uh, $1.2 billion, is what we... Uh, would consider a, um, a time cost to uh, new drug development. That is, if you view drug development uh, R and D as a uh, as an investment, uh, it's an investment that pays off if it pays off at all. Uh, only many years after the expenditures are incurred, so there's an effect a uh, cost to the um, delay. Uh, between when expenditures are incurred and when uh, potential returns are earned. And we, we essentially monetize that uh, time cost and the amount uh, we get based on an appropriate uh, uh, discount rate, which we, which we is the, uh, in this particular case, the cost of capital for biopharmaceutical firms. That's how we get the $1.2 billion to uh, add to a total of approximately 2.6 billion. 
Now, the $1.4 billion cash outlay is also divided up into uh, costs incurred uh, after uh, initial clinical testing has begun and costs incurred prior to when initial clinical um, testing has begun, uh, which we refer to as pre-human, pre-human costs that would include discovery and preclinical development. Your study also suggests there are considerable costs that are incurred after a drug is approved. What are those costs? Well, those 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 would, those would be all R and D incurred after uh, uh, drug is initially approved uh, by the uh, uh, by the U.S. Uh, FDA. So it to include uh, new indications for the already approved drugs, approved approved drug, new um, formulations, new strengths, new dosage regimens, uh, whatever needs to be done, if anything needs to be done to. Uh, uh, meet the requirements of approval that is post post marketing uh, requirements may perhaps imposed imposed by the FDA or other or other other regulatory authorities. Basically, all R and D that that occurs um, subsequent to initial uh, initial marketing approval, and we calculated that amount to be approximately twenty in terms of the actual cash outlays, approximately twenty five percent of the total life cycle R and D costs. Uh, per approved new compound, that is the pre-approval costs plus plus the uh, post-approval costs. So uh, essentially, taking you from about two point six to two point nine billion on a on a, a capitalized basis, as a taking into account the the time here and time costs, uh, that would take us to approximately yes, approximately two point nine billion. So, so walk us a, a little through the calculation. Where, where does the data come from? How do you determine what, what drugs are included, what companies are included in the survey? Well, we maintain a, a database of investigational compounds uh, for top 50 firms, and uh, we, for the firms that agreed to participate in the study, there were 10 firms that uh, participated in the study. Uh, we randomly selected a number of compounds that, um, according to the data we already had, first entered clinical testing anywhere in the world from 1995 to 2007. And uh, <clears throat> we followed those drugs uh, through 2000, 2013. Most of them, um, the vast majority of them failed during uh, during clinical development well before 2013. Some of them got approved in that period. Uh, there are a number of other um, parameters that are used to um, develop our cost estimates and that are critical, which include um, um, uh, development times and clinical approval success rates, as, as well as phase attrition rates, phase failure rates, uh, failure rates within within clinical phases. And, and we estimated those. Um, we estimated those risks in particular um, based on um, a larger database we had of compounds that met the study inclusion criteria. Nearly fifteen hundred compounds, and that allowed us to um, to to estimate the, the likelihood that a compound that enters clinical testing will proceed from one phase to the next, and will eventually get approved. And our <clears throat> Uh, the overall clinical approval success rate uh, turned out to be much lower than it had been in the past, um, just under 12%, in particular 11.8%. That contrasts to what we had found for a previous study in an earlier period 
of an approval success rate of um, a little more than one in five, in particular, 21.5%. So the cost of failure has actually increased here? Pardon me? I say the cost of failure has actually increased during this time? Well, the the proportion of compounds that failed uh, increased, and that you know, other things equal, uh, that will result in higher in higher costs, higher cash outlays. Well, th- there was a mantra for many years about failing fast. Ha- has the industry been able to get smarter about drug development and, and kill drugs earlier in the development process rather than fund large, expensive trials that fail, or is this still a a problem? Well, interestingly, they 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 apparently did get better at that, in that our data show that of the drugs that failed, they did fail somewhat earlier in the process, and that has the the um, effect of um, of uh, moderating uh, any increases in costs. Unfortunately, that was overwhelmed by the uh, overall decline in the overall in in the in the overall approval success rate. While they were able to fail the failures earlier, they encountered more failures uh, in the process. So the numbers are not without controversy, although while some critics in the past have suggested they significantly overstate the true cost of drug development, others have made the case that the cost is actually considerably higher. Why do you think there is such controversy and inconsistency in how people calculate this number? And why, given the fact that these are, by and large, public companies, isn't there more transparency around this? Well, and there's there's transparency in the their overall uh, R and D expenditure levels, though you you find those in on financial statements. Um, but the uh, going down to a to a lower level, on the actual project level, those you know those costs are those costs are confidential. Uh, I'm not aware, really, of any. Um, valid, if you will, study that shows that their their costs are substantially lower. What's what's usually done is that um, um, the critics are <clears throat> um, sort of take apart the various components here and assumptions here, and um, sort of you know sometimes ask themselves, well, what would it be if we if we didn't do this or we didn't do that methodologically? For example, if we didn't include time costs, or if they Included um, 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 tax ex, uh, uh, tax credits and um, the expensing of R and D expenditures on uh, on uh, on uh, for tax purposes by by companies. We were interested in because we think it's valid to to include opportunity costs, in particular the time costs of new drug development. But uh, we also explicitly label our results as pre-tax, as we're interested in the actual resource costs expended in the uh, in the private sector for the development for the development of new compounds and <clears throat> imposing um, uh, some tax structure on the process will mask uh, changes over time because tax structures change over time. Some of the other sort of the higher estimates are. Uh, use the you know published uh, uh, company uh, uh, R and D expenditure data and um, <clears throat> and look at the number of approvals of those companies. One so problem with, with with doing it that way is that um, there's a significant lag structure between when um, expenditures are incurred and when when approvals occur. 
So if you use a, essentially a contemporaneous set of expenditures and approvals, you'll tend to overestimate <clears throat> somewhat the, uh, the cost of drug development if R&D expenditures have, in the industry have been increasing over time, as, which has been the case. So from study to study, has your methodology been consistent? Absolutely. It's, it's really the same, the same methodology uh, uh, across uh, so, uh, a number of studies over the decades. This is the fourth in a series. Even if someone disputed these numbers, I think given the consistent methodology, there's been a dramatic increase in the cost of drug development. What? Absolutely. That's what our, certainly what our data show. If you, if you take the last study and put it in the same year's dollars, I should say our 2.6 and 2.9 billion dollar figures are were calculated in terms of year 2013 dollars. But if we take the old study and put that in, in year 2013 dollars, we see that there was a 145 percent increase in cost per approved compound between once the, between the last study and the current study, and <clears throat> the effective. Difference in periods between the studies is approximately 11 years. Why the dramatic growth in the numbers, particularly at a time when we're seeing more targeted therapies and drugs aimed at smaller populations that should be less expensive to develop than the types of blockbuster indications that, that characterize the focus of the industry historically? Is it just too early to see these trends affect the numbers? Uh, I think it is too early to see, see these trends given the, given the, given the period, uh, that we analyzed. Um, uh, it's also the case that um, that firms have been uh, increasingly uh, looking at more indications prior to initial approval. So while um, you know a particular targeted indication may not have large uh, uh, clinical trial sizes, may or may not have um, <clears throat> uh, large per patient costs, uh, the cumulative effect of looking at uh, a number of targeted indications prior to approval, more indications than in the past, uh, is a factor actually that could, uh, could lead to, could lead to increased costs. But as to how this, um, that's all played out for the, um, um, the, the focus in the, um, in, in development in the last few years, that's really something that, well, would have to await the next study. The pharmaceutical industry has traditionally pointed to these numbers and the high cost of drug development to make the case for why drugs are expensive as they are, the need to recoup the high cost of drug development. But it seems over time these numbers, particularly for large pharmaceutical companies, have started to, to form a different case. We, we've seen a number of smaller biotechs produce drugs much more cost-effectively and, and faster than large drug makers. This has to do with the nature of what they're developing. But but even through though drug development is high-risk and expensive, do these numbers tell a story other than massive inefficiency and waste? Would you argue that there are other things going on? Well, I think you know, certainly some of the increases is due to the, due to the fact that um, firms, I think, have been targeting more um, uh, difficult areas, more scientifically and medically difficult uh, problems. Uh, there's been a substantial growth in 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 biomarkers, and uh, but a lot of them are not not validated. So, but the but the <clears throat> scientific developments have led firms to um, nonetheless pursue um, uh, a lot of these biomarkers, which I said have not all been uh, certainly not all been been validated, and that can 
can lead to more uh, failures than we've had in the past. In the past, and then we've certainly seen, they said, success rates success rates declining over time, and with with more failures, you, you get you get higher costs. Well, the other change we've seen in recent years, driven in part by changes in healthcare payment schemes, but but also by drug makers themselves, is this move to pricing drugs based on value. In, in such a world, from a question of value, does it matter what drug makers spend on developing a drug when it comes to how much that drug should cost? Well, if, if you look at individual um, drug products, the uh, the the price, however it's determined, whether it's value based or not, is not going to be determined based on the prior and the expenditures for that particular drug, or even some measure of the average industry industry R and D costs. It's going to be determined by the uh, competitive landscape, the uh, practices and policies of uh, uh, payers and reimbursement authorities here and abroad, and um, uh, I think, to an increasing extent, the uh, the value that these products bring to uh, patients and and to the healthcare system. That said, though, um, it it does have to be the case that in the long run, these 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 R&D costs have to be uh, R&D costs have to be uh, recouped if innovation is to stay at its current level or increase. Um, if you uh, if if R and D costs continue to increase over time, but uh, um, but uh, pricing and, and reimbursement levels uh, remain fat flat, you'd expect um, less development in the future, and so ultimately less innovation. So, so the R and D cost figures are a factor that help, along with pricing and reimbursement levels and other costs, help determine. Uh, the innovate uh, uh, incentive structure for innovation in the biopharmaceutical industry. So while we've had a, a lot of deep thinking and, and changes to R&D approaches, d- does there anything out there give you hope you're going to see these numbers turn anytime soon? Well, it, I don't think they'll, they'll change dramatically. I don't think... Uh, and they certainly will change revolutionary in a revolutionary fashion in, in the short term. It'll be more, more of an evolutionary process. I think there's there's a lot of work on um, on uh, a lot of thinking about uh, the clinical trial process and how that can be made more efficient. If we can, you know, make use more of a adaptive designs and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of thinking about uh, how to better predict regulatory success based on uh, outcomes up to a certain point. During during clinical development, if we do any, can do anything to reduce failure rates, that will certainly uh, certainly help reduce costs. Joe DeMassi, director of economic analysis at Tufts Center for the study of drug development and principal investigator of the cost of drug development study. Joe, thanks as always. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. 
Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.